Hey everyone, and welcome to Inside the Morgue. We're your autopsy tech hosts, Jess and Alice. This week, we're dissecting Law & Order SVU Season 4, Episode 24, titled Perfect. We'll be discussing ballistics, lasers, different types of autopsy exams, paternity testing, and the case of Elizabeth Smart. This whole episode was a lot, so let's get into it. So we start with the police arriving to a robbery scene, and they hear shooting from the alley, and they find two other cops arresting a man, and they stumble upon a dead girl in the alley as well, with what appears to be a gunshot wound to her head. Stabler and Benson arrive on the scene. The victim was a black female teenager, presumed to be a runaway. She had burn marks all down her arms, and she was covered in a pretty decent blanket, and she had braids in her hair, so it kind of looked like she was taken care of. But they think she was an abuse victim and she was tortured. And then during the investigation of the scene, a CSI recovers seven slugs, but says that they're too badly damaged for any microscopic work. So a slug, for anyone who doesn't know, is a bulky, solid ballistic projectile. They were also able to recover shell casings and match them to each weapon that was used. A little about ballistics, a cartridge case or a shell casing is the container for all of the other components that comprise a cartridge, which itself, the cartridge, contains the primer in the center of the case, and that is what gets struck by the firing pin when you go to shoot a gun. The anatomy of a gun and of, like, just ballistics in general is fascinating, and, like, I understand human anatomy fairly well with our job, but, yeah, it's insane. I remember in school, we were learning all about ballistics. Like we had a whole course dedicated to us learning about guns and what is what goes into it. And I didn't really know anything about guns before that. And I was talking to my boyfriend, Dom, and I was like, Dom, I don't know what I'm even looking at. And he goes, well, it's simple. You do this and then there's this part. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I, yeah, it, it's insane. Props to anybody who works in ballistics. It, for real. There is so much to know about the different projectiles, the different parts of each projectile. It's it's a lot. So each person at the shooting had nine bullets in their guns, so the casings would have gone about 10 feet to the right and a little to the rear. So they know approximately where each person is firing from. The bullet passed through a steel drum in the alley, making the trajectory through two fixed points. They have the approximate locations of the two officers that chased the perp down the alley in the opening scene, and ballistic alignment laser will tell for sure who shot the victim. Laser bullet trajectory photography is an actual thing. I've done it. I did it in the photography training that I went to. That's so cool. It is really cool. I'll have to post the pictures that I took during that training to our Instagram so you all can see, like, what I'm talking about because it is really fascinating. So investigators will use this technique to construct the bullet trajectory for evidentiary purposes. You basically use a piece of paper or something really reflective and you have a really long shutter speed. So while your shutter is open, you have the laser pointing to where you want it to go and you follow that laser with the reflective paper making the actual line so when you go to actually take your picture the whole line of the laser shows up that's so cool i want to see these pictures too they're so cool the guy who did our training he was walking us through it and then at the very end of the course we did it ourselves and the outcome of it was really cool to see i'll definitely post it to our instagram so check that out so they all fired on the run so it could have been any one of them who shot the victim They then reenact where each person was standing and the laser lands where the perp was standing, so he was the one who actually shot the girl. And then back in the morgue, 
The Emmy tells Stabler and Benson that their Jane Doe was already dead when the perp shot her. The cop says she was still warm, however, when they brought her to the morgue, her lower extremities were already stiff, meaning that she was going into rigor, which is, we know, the stiffening of the muscles, which starts within a few hours after death and then fully develops around 12 hours. They estimate that she was dead for about four to five hours before the shooting. She was filthy like she hadn't been bathed in weeks, and the ME has her property for evidence. She just had a necklace with an infinity symbol on the chain and some clothing on her. So I give a green flag for how they packaged the evidence and the clothing. It's all in evidence bags with evidence tape on it, and everything was packaged separately, and that's definitely a green flag because we do that for homicides or suspected homicides. What the cop at the scene had believed to be burn marks on her arm were actually cockroach bites. That just sounds so horrible. Right? It sounds really unpleasant. If she was homeless, she could have gotten them on the street or after she had died. However, the ME points out that the bites wouldn't swell if she was dead. So let us reiterate our favorite saying here on Inside the Morgue. Dead men don't bleed and they certainly don't have any type of healing reaction towards a bug bite. Very true. Very true. And roaches wouldn't bite unless she was immobile. So she was either sick and couldn't move or she was restrained. So the SVU team believed that she was being kept somewhere and that her body was moved to the alley where she was then found. And the shot was post-mortem during the police chase earlier. The blanket that was covering her was new, so they believe it was a caregiving gesture. The same with the ribbons in her hair. That's like a very common sign of remorse from the killer. Right. It's a sign that they might have known their victim. And yeah, yeah, it wasn't just a stranger to them. That's like a really fascinating, we'll get into this later on in the episode, but like forensic psychology, people who study like criminology and criminals and like why they do the things they do. I always find that so interesting. Yeah. And I feel like we find it interesting because our, thankfully, our minds don't work that way. Mm -hmm. And so, and I feel like that's a lot of what I mean, you're all listening to this. You have to have some interest in forensics and true crime. And I feel like a lot of it is we're all just trying to understand the way like certain people think like this. And we we just can't. And it's just a constant trying to learn more because we're trying to figure out why they do the things that they do. And yeah, I think that's part of the, the true crime craze that everybody always talks about. I think in another life, that was the route I probably would have gone in forensics if I didn't stick with being an autopsy tech. So anyway, back in the show... They got an ID on the victim. Her name was Samantha Tassler, and she was a girl who disappeared from Philly, specifically Montgomery County. So if anyone is from the PA area or knows anything about PA, that's basically right outside of Philly. Her parents are coming to the precinct to ID her. They show the parents some of Samantha's personal effects, and they say they've never seen any of them, not even the necklace. They take the necklace in for testing and find out that it's solid platinum and probably worth close to a grand. They can't make sense of her wearing cheap clothing and living on the street, but not selling the necklace for money for food. And x-ray fluorescence testing on it revealed that it was covered in rhodium to make it shine. So rhodium is a chemical element, it's silvery white, and it's a really rare non-radioactive metal. Rhodium likely indicates that the necklace was handmade, and there are three tiny initials engraved on the back. The initials are RSC. And they are putting together those initials in the database to see if there's any jeweler in the area who makes their own jewelry and has those initials. 
they get a hit for a jeweler named Ross St. Clair. Stabler and Benson go to his shop and they show him a photo of Samantha, but he doesn't remember her. He says his jewelry is too expensive for teenagers. They show him a picture of the necklace and he says that it costs about $800 at his store because it's custom made. They tell him that the girl who was found wearing his necklace was dead and he tells them that he made the necklace for someone named Garrett Lang. He's a regular at the shop and sent his assistant over with a drawing for the design of the necklace. Lang had ordered hundreds of these necklaces and gave Ross Sinclair 80 grand up front to make them. 80 grand up front. I can't even fathom that much money. 80 grand up front. Just Could you imagine if someone just like handed you that and was like, make me like a thousand necklaces? I can't. I can't imagine. I can't. I can't fathom <laughs> that much money. <laughs> 80 grand just up front. It, it must, must be, be nice. nice. So they ask the jeweler for Lang's info, and RSC gives them Lang's business card. They go to Lang, and he says that his necklaces are a symbol of eternal life, and he gives them to all of his patients. That's strange. I also, I didn't know what kind of doctor he was, and I'm like, my, any doctor I've ever been to is never like, here, take this $800 necklace that I give to all of my patients. He's a doctor, which I didn't know at first. They don't say it right away. (laughs) No. I had to, like, think about it. I was like, what? What Where are they? They're in a really crazy, fancy place. They're coming down, like, a spiral staircase. And he's like, I give them to all my patients. And I'm like, what do you do that you give? So stereotypical. Give away $800 necklaces to all of your patients. You find out why later. (laughs) No spoilers just yet. (laughs) But we're going to spoil it in a few minutes. So they show him the picture of Samantha, and he says he doesn't recognize her. He says he treats his patients with human growth hormone and says that it's used for people with short stature, but that's not what he does, and he doesn't treat children. So human growth hormone is produced by your pituitary gland, which is about the size of a pea, and it sits in the base of your brain. So we take this out at autopsy. We take the brain out first, and then there's a little bone that kind of sits in front of it. We break that off, and then... The pituitary is literally in the base of your brain. It's like almost like top middle of your brain, not exactly right in the middle because that's where your brain stem is. It has like a little compartment. It does. It has its little own compartment in your brain and it sits in there. And it it could actually tell you a lot. Like if it's too big, that means something. If it's too small based on like your age, that also tells the doctor something at autopsy. But as you grow older, it slowly reduces the amount of growth hormone it produces to your body. So you can get HGH injections and it can increase muscle mass and decrease body fat, but all of this comes with risks. They say that one of his necklaces was found on the victim. They ask for a list of patients, but he says it would be unethical of him to give that information away. They find that Lang went to Ivy Leagues for undergrad, med school, and grad school. He did his residency in OBGYN and a fellowship in infertility and reproductive endocrinology. So for those who don't know what endocrinologists do, they treat diseases related to problems with hormones. He was a top researcher in his field until he left academia behind to open his feel-good shop, as they call it. He claims hormones reverse the aging process. They're wondering what he could want with a 14-year-old girl. Finn, Ice-T's character, theorizes that he might be a pedophile. Benson points out that there is nothing but the infinity necklace tying Lang to their victim, and there's no way to prove she got it from Lang. She could have gotten it from one of his patients, and they can't get that list. 
The internal exam of the autopsy hasn't been done yet, and we've talked about this before, but an internal exam is obviously different from an external exam. An external examination is defined as a detailed description of the decedent's remains, including scars, surgical incisions, medical devices, tattoos, etc. No internal cuts are made on the body and no organs are examined. But a complete or full autopsy includes an external exam and an internal exam with the removal or dissection of the organs and the opening of the head. So Benson is told to wait at the Emmy's office until the autopsy is done. I can't imagine having someone just come and camp out at the office until something was done. And like, who knows how long it could take too. They're in New York City. Mm-hmm. It's got to be insane there. I'm sure New York is, if not the busiest out of like every county in the U.S. It's got to be the busiest. If you've read Working Stiff, we've talked about this book before, Working Stiff by Dr. Judy Malinick. She worked in New York City. Great book. Great book. And she worked in New York City for a while. And this sounds insane. I think they told when she, someone told her to try and work in New York City because you would see everything. I can't even imagine how many cases they do a day. Right? They'd laugh at me if I was like, I do three a day. (laughs) They'd be like, sorry, three an hour? (laughs) Right. So in the morgue, the Emmy says that she found traces of facial tissue and dried saliva on the right cheek that are being sent for DNA testing. Usually a cotton swab will be used to send out for testing. Benson says that sounds like someone was there when she died and asked if that's sufficient enough to rule this a homicide. The Emmy thinks that Samantha died of a blood clot to the left lung caused by severe dehydration. So a blood clot in the lung is typically referred to as a pulmonary embolism. We see this a lot in our office for cases that we work. And a PE, pulmonary embolism, can be the result of a DVT traveling to your lungs and blocking a blood vessel in your lungs. This leads to low oxygen levels in your blood, causing damage to the lungs and other organs. And this is a green flag because dehydration is a risk factor for blood clots. He thinks she was deprived of fluids between 5 to 10 days. Oh my god. And that her blood basically turned to sludge. I this When she said sludge, it made my skin crawl thinking how horrible that is it did but i also the way that she described it as sludge is definitely something a medical examiner would do oh for sure it didn't strike me as weird to say it like that i was just like oh so bad so it sounds like she was locked away for some time which is consistent with the roach bite marks when the emmy examined her reproductive organs she had 12 visibly involuted follicles so just for reference on average a woman when she is menstruating will have one or two follicles like this so this suggests that the ovaries were being hyper stimulated by hormones like for ivf in vitro fertilization she was also carrying an eight week old fetus so clearly they are suspicious that lang had something to do with this since he's a big wheel in the hormone research place with all of his patients giving them $800 necklaces. However, this is all circumstantial, so they can't get an arrest warrant just yet. They need something direct. The lawyer that they're talking to says that no judge will let them look at a doctor's patient list, but they can see his IRS records. Looking through his records, they see that he has everything listed under his corporation, nothing directly to his name. So it's going to take a long time to trace who made calls to and from his clinic. He has a ton of money, I like lost track. Obviously, we know he has a ton of money because he dropped 80 grand for necklaces on necklaces. (laughs) But they were saying like millions of dollars in property, multiple properties. So he owns a lot of property and he's even applying for a tax exempt status on one of them. Stabler asked why he's trying to claim that. And it's because he's saying it is a, quote, charitable organization. So it is called the Foundation for Knowledge Expansion. 
which that is such an interesting name. Definitely not the name that I would have chosen if I had an organization like this. It made me think of Zoolander. Have you ever seen Zoolander? No. (laughs) He's trying to open a school like he wants to. And he calls it the school for kids who can't read good. And it's just like a crazy name. And I'm like, this just seems like <laughs> something Zoolander would say. Like, the foundation for knowledge expansion. Like, I will watch this movie now just because you told me about that. It is one of my boyfriend's favorites. And I didn't, it's an older movie and I didn't watch it until recently. And it's... It's very funny. Some of it hasn't aged well, but... As a lot of movies have, right? I know, unfortunately. So it's a nonprofit educational program for young children at risk. They head this organization because it seems likely maybe Samantha was there. They stake out the foundation for knowledge expansion and see a bunch of young girls going in, and one girl looks familiar to Benson. She looks like a girl who disappeared from the Upper East Side around the same time that Samantha disappeared from Philly. They knock on the front door and ask to see Jessica Morse, who's the girl that they think just walked in there. The woman says she doesn't know what they're talking about. She also says that this is her school and she's a licensed teacher and that the girls are all her students. She says she finds the girls on the streets and takes them in and she leads Benson and Stabler into her office. She says she gives the girls a safe place to live and she gives them food and takes care of them. Benson arrests this woman and says that these kids are going back to their parents because it looks like they're all kidnapped. While cuffing her, Benson notices the woman has an infinity tattoo on her left wrist. The woman says it means infinite potential and then asks for a lawyer. While leaving the office, Stabler sees the girl that they followed in there and says she looks like the girl who disappeared last year. The girl says she isn't who they think she is and Stabler calls her by her name, Jessica, and says that her family wants her back home and it seems like she has a slight emotional reaction to hearing this, but then she puts on a brave face again and changes her tone and says that her name is Marjorie and that the school is her family. Back at the precinct, they have the teacher woman in interrogation with her lawyer. She kept five 14-year-old girls at her, quote, school, all of whom's parents had reported them as kidnapped or runaways. The woman says she was just trying to help the girls and that they left home because their parents mistreated them. The foundation's board of directors pays for the woman's salary and the funds that come from, quote, charitable contributions. The lawyer says that Dr. Lang started the foundation and provided the initial endowment, but he no longer has any dealings with the organization. They show the woman Samantha's ID photo from autopsy. Green flag, because we've talked about this before. We do take ID photos at autopsy, and this is used for identification purposes. Obviously, that's why it's called ID shots. But the woman says she never saw this girl before. The girl who claims to be Marjorie, but they believe to be the missing Jessica, is also at the precinct being questioned. Her parents are coming to get her, and the whole time she's claiming to be Marjorie and not Jessica, and she begins to cry, and Stabler tells her it's going to be okay. And she says, no, it's not. She has to go back to the school. And she says she knows everyone thinks she was kidnapped, but that she ran away because her parents didn't understand her. And the woman running the foundation does. She says the woman saved her life. And she said that she took her in off the streets, fed her, taught her, and did the same thing for the other girls. They're taught that all girls should respect themselves and each other. Stabler shows Marjorie slash Jessica a picture of Samantha, but... Marjorie slash Jessica says that she doesn't recognize her. The other four girls who were at the school are now also at the precinct and they are all high profile cases because they come from wealthy or upper middle class families. They all deny their real names and say that they had run away and that they weren't kidnapped. This is more than Stockholm Syndrome. They are totally devoted to this woman. Her name is Mrs. Haggerty and they seem to be brainwashed and likely in a cult. 
Unless the girls start talking, the best they can get Mrs. Haggerty on is custodial interference, which is just a misdemeanor. Custodial interference is when a person commits an offense if he knowingly takes any child under 18 from the custody of their parents when he has no privilege to do so. And they don't have any proof that Lang is connected in all this except that he owns the building. The forensic psychologist who's there for the FBI, I believe his name is Wong. So forensic psychology is a forensic specialty that applies scientific knowledge and method to help answer legal questions arising from criminal, civil, or other judicial proceedings. So if you ever watch Mindhunter, this is all the show is about. Also a great show. Such a good show and a decent book. I like the book too. I know they're not coming out with season three, but it was a really good book. And again, if I was in another life, this is the route I probably would have gone. It's like such fascinating work. But yes, the forensic psychologist, who I believe is named Wong, he's from the FBI, says that maybe Samantha was being punished for not going along with something the cult was doing, and that cults will often punish members for misbehaving by locking them up without food or water, which is how the Emmy says she died. They also became worried that there were more girls being held somewhere like Samantha was, like at another one of Lang's properties. So they go back to the foundation's brownstone, which is where they were earlier, but now it is completely empty which is crazy because it was fully furnished when they were there earlier that day. They want to get every piece of dirt off the floor and any surface dusted for prints of any kind because this place looks like it was sanitized to make it look like no one was there. Neighbors say that three trucks came and cleaned the place out in just two hours, which, like, if you watch this episode, it's like a fully functioning, it has a school, a little classroom. There were a bunch of girls living there. It's huge. It was huge. Someone had to have tipped these people off to come and clean this house, but who? So Mrs. Haggerty and the girls didn't have any access to the phone when they were at the precincts, so they go to Mrs. Haggerty's lawyer, where Mrs. Haggerty is sitting with Dr. Lang, and they ask Lang and Haggerty and the attorney who cleaned up and gave the tip to clean out the brownstone. It's also suspicious that Dr. Lang and Mrs. Haggerty have the same lawyer. Dr. Lang is questioned about Samantha's fertility treatments because it seemed like she was getting IVF treatments, but he claimed any OBGYN could have performed that. But not every fertility expert gives out infinity necklaces like he does. Bit of a giveaway there. Because he's loaded. He's loaded and just (laughs) (laughs) gives jewelry to like every patient. They also point out that Mrs. Haggerty had the symbol tattooed on her wrist. Dr. Lang enjoys helping those girls thrive and realize their full potential, or that's what he says. So unless Benson and Stabler are going to arrest any of them, the lawyer says that she will call the Internal Affairs Bureau to report them for harassment. So according to the FBI psych expert, Lang is a narcissist who is calling all the shots in this scheme. Lang uses his personality to get people like Mrs. Haggerty and the lawyer to love and obey him. It also looks like he preys on young girls who are social outcasts and inundates them with, quote, love bombing. So it looks like these girls didn't end up with Mrs. Haggerty by accident. They were definitely targeted beforehand. So next we see Benson and Stabler meeting with Samantha's parents to inform them that they believe their daughter was murdered. Stabler asks if there were any changes in Samantha's routine before she disappeared or if she started acting differently. She only had a few friends and they were a bad influence because they drank and smoked and got Samantha to do it too. Her grades started to drop and they enrolled her in a tutoring center. That tutoring center said it would help kids realize their full potential, which is exactly what Lang had just said. They go to one of these tutoring centers and start by showing pictures of the girls asking if they look familiar. The woman working at the center says that she's never seen this girl before. When she raises her hand to ask them to leave, Benson notices an infinity symbol tattooed on this woman's wrist. 
Does everybody just have infinity symbols? I mean, they do now. I was just going to say that. I want to know when this episode came out. That's so like 2012. Because it's it's a popular tattoo, or it was, and like now a lot of people have it. No judgment. I have I have some tattoos that were like trendy back in the day and are no longer. But like I was thinking that the entire episode, I was like, I feel like that's such, and it's a common place to get an infinity symbol too, right on the wrist. And I was like, I feel like... Were they, like, calling out people who got that tattoo? Like, are they judging? I am <laughs> obsessed with that. <laughs> Don't judge basic tattoos, okay? I have a basic tattoo. I have a couple of basic tattoos. I have, some, I I have a basic them. tattoo. But it's yeah. fine. <laughs> Listen, and we're allowed to. It's my body. I can do what I want. We're not in a cult. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> Maybe I am, and I just don't know. Has any weird man given you really expensive necklaces lately not yet but i hope he does i'll sell it (laughs) (laughs) sell it good (laughs) so they ask her about lang and she says that he is a forward thinker and a generous man who wants to help young girls fulfill their knowledge it turns out that all six girls they found in the home had attended one of these knowledge builders centers in their own cities And it wouldn't be surprising if the tutor center asks them to take a personality quiz at the center in order to identify susceptible girls. I've heard of that with cults and like other weird organizations. Like they, they're like, come in and take our personality test and like. To see if you're a good fit for the cult? I don't know. I mean, they don't say they're a cult. (laughs) They're not going to be like, hey, come join our cult. They're like, hey, like, come join our group. Like, take this free. It's like a pyramid scheme. Take this free personality quiz. And like, or like, yeah, like a pyramid scheme thing. I feel like. Dude. more pyramid schemey type thing it's like hey take our personality quiz oh my god you're such a good fit for our team i'm never taking another personality quiz oh i will i am a sucker for a personality quiz if a random person on the streets like come take this personality quiz i'm gonna say no but man if it's a buzzfeed quiz i'll take every buzzfeed quiz there is see i'm, I'm talking about people being basic i will take any buzzfeed quiz to figure out what kind of bread i am i was <laughs> just gonna say that <laughs> I need to know what type well, of dog I am. You have to be a corgi. Are you a corgi? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I all right. Now we need to take these quizzes and post our results. I'll, we'll link it in our in our Instagram story. In our Instagram story, we're gonna take what kind of bread we are and what kind of dog we are. And we'll let you guys know. And you have to let us know your answers. So they checked the tutor's credit card statement and found that she was in all of the cities that the girls disappeared from at the same time of their disappearances. A little suspicious there. Which, again, it looks like she was involved, but isn't a smoking gun. All of the girls have gone home with their families, and the only girl in the area is Jessica, so they need to talk to her and kind of see, like, what she's thinking and get some more information. Stabler goes to talk to her, and she misses Mrs. Haggerty and that she was the most wonderful person she ever met. She accepted Jessica for who she was, as did the other girls. She also says that Lang was a great man who would save the world. Stabler asks how he's going to do that, and Jessica says that because the ozone layer is disappearing and the UV rays will make everyone sterile, the only way that humans will survive is by cloning living cells. Okay, this is like the part of the show where I was like, wow, this is like major cult signs she's in a cult (laughs) she's in a cult she's in a cult that's when i was like oh she genuinely believes this man like she wholeheartedly believes that yes the world is dying and i'm we're cloning cells this is like he's gonna save the world and i'm gonna help him and it's just like that was like so sad so sad i was like oh no she then reveals that she's pregnant and that she was chosen by lang to be one of the mothers of the future 
again, super culty. Mm-hmm. Lang told her that she was carrying a cloned baby to help a couple whose baby died and that she's going to bring the child back to life. She says Lang didn't have sex with her. He took the, quote, baby cells and put them in her egg and then put the egg back inside her. The SVU team breaks into what appears to be a medical lab where the insemination is happening. In the back room, they see Dr. Lang doing an experiment on a young girl. Lang thinks that he's making medical history by doing all this, and I definitely give a red flag for Lang. Because in the middle of this procedure that they barged in on, he's wearing, like, safety glasses, like, eye protection, but it's on the top of his head. And he's literally, like, in the middle of impregnating somebody. Yeah, he's like... He has poor PPE, and he should have had his glasses on. This man is a walking red flag for so many reasons, but this is an official... Especially inside for the poor PPE. Red... Yeah, we're giving <laughs> an official inside the morgue red flag for poor PPE, because you know we are sticklers. They arrest him, and they bring him into interrogation. He's confronted about his plan to impregnate young girls and falsely claiming that the children are clones. It is also illegal to clone people. Just in case you guys didn't know. In case you didn't know that. <laughs> don't try this and don't join any cults where someone is claiming they're going to clone Do anyone. Do we need a disclaimer of don't try this at home? Please. Oh my gosh. I don't think we've said that since episode one. Don't try this. I mean, any mad scientist. <laughs> don't join a cult and don't clone don't, humans. Don't join a cult. Don't try any of this at home if you're a mad scientist, please. Don't spend 80 grand on necklaces. Don't do anything this man does. He's insane. He thinks that he's a scientific genius comparable to Darwin or or even the Messiah. Uh-huh. This man. That's a classic cult behavior where he's like, I am going to save the world. What was it? Charles Manson. He was the, uh, the Waco cult. Yeah. I think he believed that he was the Messiah. Charles Manson. Ugh, I hate him. I mean, everybody does. Rightfully so. Yeah, rightfully so. Yeah, classic cult behavior. Yeah, exactly. Lang will be charged with fraud and sexual abuse, but this might not stand in court because all of the girls consented to what he was doing. Also, there was no sexual contact, so a rape charge wouldn't even stand in court. Despite the girls being underage, they're old enough to consent to reproductive rights. They can get pregnant no matter how they do it. They can't charge Lang unless they can prove he is connected in some way to Samantha's death. The Emmy is officially ruling Samantha's death as a homicide. They got the DNA back on the swab from Samantha's cheek, and it belonged to Haggerty. So a red flag, because obviously we've talked about this so many times before, DNA does not come back that fast, considering I feel like all of this happened within a few days, like within a week. Yeah, that's the timeline I understood, and I, was, I thought the same thing. I was like, this seemed quick. It, DNA definitely takes way longer than just a week. Yeah, and I know they have to speed it up because they only have, like, what, 45, 45 minutes, minutes of airtime, but... At least do like eight weeks later, like the little SpongeBob, right? Like eight weeks later. So the DNA of the fetus that Samantha was carrying had DNA from Samantha and an unknown father. They need DNA from Lang to prove that it was his. And I don't know if any of you guys had done this in like your bio classes. I definitely did this in my college bio labs. The lab you send a sample to will generate a DNA profile of specific genetic markers called STRs or short tandem repeats. And at each DNA locus, you have two alleles. One is inherited from your mom and the other is inherited from your dad. So then PCR or the polymerase chain reaction. I used to do that. I'm getting into my bio here. Yeah, that used to be my job before I went to forensics. I did PCR testing. PCR amplifies the DNA to determine the specific alleles that you have for each STR marker. 
and it's expected that at least one allele at each DNA locus in the child's DNA profile will be found at the same DNA locus in the biological parent's DNA. So, like, I definitely remember in bio labs, there was, like, the worksheets that you would match. Like, you would tell, like, oh, who's the mom or who's the dad based on this thing that we have here. So, for example, if allele 13 and 14 are present in the child and allele 13 is present in the dad, they have the same number present in each column, so this is a match. If Samantha found out she was actually pregnant with Lang's child and not a, quote, clone, like he had told her, that could have been motive for him to kill her so she wouldn't tell anybody. It also appears that he fathered Jessica's baby as well. Lang told Jessica that her baby didn't have a father, but the DNA from her baby tells the detectives that it does have a father and that it was Dr. Lang. Jessica doesn't respond very well to this, of course. I mean, I wouldn't either. She doesn't want to believe that Lang lied to her because she truly believed everything he was saying. She then says that it's her fault that Samantha's dead. Samantha told Jessica that Lang was a fake and that she was going to tell the police. Jessica told Mrs. Haggerty, and Mrs. Haggerty said that Samantha had to be reasoned with, and then one day in front of all the girls, Haggerty took Samantha away. At the trial, Jessica takes the stand and describes the room that Haggerty took Samantha to. She says there was no furniture and no toilet, just a bucket. She never saw Samantha after that. She didn't know if she was dead until Stabler and Benson took them from the home a week ago. Jessica never saw Samantha around Lang because he made sure to always see the girls alone. When Lang takes the stand, he says that he was on the team that first cloned a cat and that he believes he's close to cloning a human being. Dolly the sheep, which was the first animal cloned, she only lived for about six years and experts say that cloned human babies, if, if that ever happens, could be ill or deformed. The prosecutors ask why he would promise families clone babies if he didn't even know how to fulfill that promise. He had used his own sperm to impregnate the girls, and the money from the parents was crucial for him to continue, so he was going to give them his babies he created with his sperm and the girls' egg until he could clone their children. He needed the money for research, which at this time is illegal. Just everything. He's like, which is illegal. And everybody in the courtroom is like, yes, that's why we're here. Thank you. Thanks for your input, sir. He thinks he's so much smarter than everybody else. He's like telling a lawyer, like, by the way, it's illegal. (laughs) Yes. That's why we brought you here, sir. You added so much to the conversation. So he points out that the girls consented to the procedure and he says he was trying to give life, not destroy it. But the prosecutor points out that he destroyed Samantha's life in the name of his research. On redirect examination, it appears that the defense attorney and Lang are trying to pin all of the blame for Samantha's death on Mrs. Haggerty. She would do anything for Lang because he said that he could bring her lost daughter back. Her daughter ran away in 1975, and that's why she wanted to work with teenage girls to help them find a place to call home. She thinks the girl's parents should have treated them better and that she should have treated her daughter better, too. Lang had manipulated Haggerty's pain to get her to help him do experiments on the girls. When Haggerty takes the stand, she's no longer defending Lang. She admits to putting Samantha in the basement without food or water because she was ordered to do so by Dr. Lang. He said she needed to be reprogrammed. Haggerty tells the court that Lang would come over at night after the girls had gone to sleep. On the sixth night of Samantha's reprogramming, Haggerty went to see Samantha to check on her and saw that she could barely move. Just as Mrs. Haggerty was going to get her water, Lang walked in and took that water away, and then Samantha died in her arms. 
She cleaned her face with tissues and fixed her hair and gave her a blanket. They carried her out to the car, and that's when they put her in the alley to make it seem like she was homeless. That's kind of where the episode ends off on. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these shows don't always have happy endings, but I feel like SVU in particular, they really try to just like hit you in the gut with like a dramatic ending. He's like being like dramatically dragged out of the courtroom. He's like, I'm going to be the next great scientist. And it's like, no, you're going to jail, buddy. <laughs> no, you're, sir, you're not. <laughs> sir, please, please calm down. Like we said in the beginning of the episode, there are a lot of things going on in this episode. But what caught our attention was the idea of young girls being kidnapped and taken into a cult by someone claiming to be a messiah. So this made us think of the survival story of Elizabeth Smart. This is a pretty well-known story, but for anyone that may not know, Elizabeth Smart was abducted from her home in 2002 when she was just 14 years old. Elizabeth lived in Salt Lake City, Utah with her family, and she was a talented harpist who was sought out to play at weddings and funerals, and she was also an equestrian and a competitive cross-country runner. On June 4th, 2002, Elizabeth and her family were attending an end-of-the-year school award ceremony where Elizabeth won many awards for academic achievements as well as for her physical fitness. Early the next morning, just after midnight, Elizabeth was awoken to the sound of footsteps and the feeling of something cold and metal against her cheek. She heard a man whisper, I have a knife to your neck. Don't make a sound. Get out of bed and come with me or I will kill you and your family. The man, who would later be identified as Brian David Mitchell, led Elizabeth out of the house and the two of them walked for hours through the forest to a camp where Brian's wife, Wanda Barzi, was waiting. Brian Mitchell believed he was a prophet named Emmanuel and he performed a, quote, wedding ceremony in the woods, declaring Elizabeth to be one of his wives. He also raped Elizabeth repeatedly. Brian Mitchell and Wanda Barzi held Elizabeth captive for nine months as they moved between California and Utah. Elizabeth was frequently kept tethered to a tree and was raped almost daily. Mitchell often forced her to consume alcohol and drugs and sometimes would not feed her for days, bringing her to the brink of starvation. All while doing this, he continually tried to indoctrinate Elizabeth into his found religion of which he thought he was the prophet. On the night that Elizabeth was kidnapped, she was taken from the bedroom that she shared with her sister, Mary Catherine. Mary Catherine had heard what had happened, but was understandably terrified and pretended to be asleep. She realized that the man that had taken her sister reminded her of a man who had been a handyman at their home and had called himself Emmanuel. She told this information to the police and they realized that Emmanuel was the man named Brian David Mitchell. And in February 2003, his photo was shared on America's Most Wanted TV show. On March 12, 2003, a passerby recognized Mitchell from the photograph while he was walking with Elizabeth, who was wearing a wig, sunglasses, and a veil. Authorities arrested Mitchell and his wife that day and Elizabeth was returned to her family that night. The prosecution against Brian David Mitchell spanned for years as questions about his mental health complicated the trial. On December 10, 2010, more than eight years after kidnapping Elizabeth, Mitchell was sentenced to life in prison after being found guilty of kidnapping and transporting a child across state lines for sexual purposes. His wife and accomplice, Wanda Barzi, was sentenced to 15 years for her involvement. Remarkably, Elizabeth Smart was able to return to a relatively normal life after surviving such a horrific experience. She soon returned to school and her favorite activities again and graduated high school in 2006. She attended Brigham Young University for music performance and she also became an activist on behalf of kidnapping survivors as well as child victims of violence and sexual abuse. She also helped write the United States Department of Justice's Handbook for Kidnapping Survivors titled You Are Not Alone, the journey from abduction to empowerment. 
In 2009, Elizabeth moved to Paris, where she was doing a mission trip for the Church of Latter-day Saints, and it was there where she met her now husband, Matthew Gilmore. In 2011, Elizabeth launched the Elizabeth Smart Foundation, which provides resources for survivors of trauma as well as their families. In 2013, she released a memoir titled My Story. She said she wrote the book as a form of closure and told Associated Press, I want people to know I'm happy in my life right now. We got this information from a biography.com article, which will be linked in our show notes, along with Elizabeth Smart's website and the Elizabeth Smart Foundation website. I remember learning about this probably when I was still in college and like her whole story and the way that she was able to kind of go back to a normal life after everything that she'd been through. I remember when she was found. I was like 10 around that time. And I just remember seeing like newspapers and magazines everywhere with her face on it. Like she was found and she was returned home. It was a really high profile case just because of how crazy it was. And her whole survival story and how she went into activism and is still an activist and still, I think the Elizabeth Smart Foundation, I was looking at their website, I think they also, like, they they do work in teaching women self-defense, which I think is super cool. And Empowering she, women. Empowering. She's very into the empowering empowerment and, like, support for trauma survivors as well as their families, which she's just incredible. To end this episode, we tallied a total of three green flags and two red flags, so in our opinion, this episode of Law & Order SVU does pass in terms of forensic accuracy. If you enjoy our podcast and want to learn more about forensics, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram at InsideTheMorgPod and DM us anything that you want to talk about. We'll be back next week for a brand new dissection. Bye! Bye.